Hi, and welcome to I Want You to Watch This. Um, I am Dennis Buckles. I am with my two friends. I'm Craig Dale. And I am Colin Munch. And today uh, we will be talking about Birdman. It is a 2014 movie. Um, one best picture, actually. Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. Yes. Is this the first or title since Doctor Strangelove? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't. I mean, I'm sure there's another one. There has to be, uh, but maybe. <laughs> I, I love subtitles to movies. Um, I'm not just saying that. I honestly do. Um, How about jazz drums? Do you love jazz drums? Jazz drums. Oh, yeah. I love jazz drums, <laughs> especially in this movie. I thought I hated it at first, but then it, it fucking fits so perfectly because this movie is a Hollywood masturbation piece, in my opinion. But we'll get to that. Um, uh, I guess, what, we'll start, uh, anything else from start uh, before? This movie is directed by Alejandro Inaritu. I'm quite certain I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. <laughs> Inaritu. Uh, Inaritu. Um, but he's the same guy who did The Revenant and Babel and 21 Grams. So, depressing shit. Um, depressing yeah. shit. Uh, it, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, no, no he's, he's done depressing stuff. He does stuff. depressing I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really call this one that I don't know uh, we'll get into it this um, one's more it depends cathartic. on your... it's, it's more got more of a cathartic feel where at the end it's like there's at least some emotional release yes it's not just like yeah. sad well like, the yes. entire time. It's right. like, it is sad but it's like sad with the purpose I, I, I guess I mean again <laughs> I want to get into it because yeah you could do it's this movie is hard to pin down yeah um, before Very much so. before I continue um, I'd like to point out that I'm dressed in a complete bird costume I was going to say that. I, I just want to say thanks, Dennis, for really carrying it. I've, I mean, these feathers. Like, I, I'm sorry. Detail I was going to say feathers. I can't even believe it. <laughs> I'm sorry that the feathers are everywhere, um, but uh, it, uh, uh, deal with it. I thought, that, <laughs> I, I thought that I was representing by wearing my full blonde Emma Stone wig, but I just walked oh, in. Oh, yeah. And saw I mean, the, the fact that you weigh less than 100 pounds is just, I mean, you really nailed the role, and, and the costume just looks great. Yeah, I mean, you really got committed to that role. Like, well, I've spent the last 12 hours uh, doing dashes on a roll of toilet paper. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, neither of us, uh, I mean, both of us pale in comparison to the uh, um, the absolute commitment that Craig has by dressing up as the entire theater. I know, I mean, it was kind of hard, you know, I had to get a wig from one character, like, one pant leg from like Edward Norton's character right. and then just like the pure like not give a fuck it's right it's the 800 like, seats is what blows me away and how you were able to represent that in a costume it's just I mean you'd really have to see it um, <laughs> but anyways without <laughs> uh, further ado I'd like to say that um, well uh, we'll go over this movie um, Birdman Birdman begins um, well okay so it begins with um Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton plays like Michael the, Keaton, essentially. He plays Michael <laughs> Keaton. Yeah, yeah. He's, a guy he's, who used to be a superhero actor and is now kind of trying to be really legitimate and everything, and right. he's largely forgotten about. Yeah, and he used to be this character, uh, like an action superhero called Birdman, uh, back in the '90s, and um, he's he did like three movies and then uh, kind of fell off the face, but everyone knows him as Birdman, and uh, he's. Currently, uh, we pick him up in this movie. He's in the middle of um, just wrapping up the rehearsal and putting together this Broadway play. And so yeah, he's he has written, produced, and stars in as well as directs 
an adaptation of a story that the movie is also based on. Uh, so the movie is Holy based shit, on... Holy shit, I didn't realize that until yes, just now. Yeah, the movie is based on the story that the play in the movie is based on. Right, okay. Yes. <laughs> so it's like quite literally a story within a story. Right. It's, like it's very... very intentionally I was surprised that this wasn't Charlie Kaufman, or, or Charlie Kaufman didn't have a hand in the script because... Uh, I, my my favorite movie of all time is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which is written by Charlie Kaufman, and it's very. Uh, he also did Synecdoche, New York, and um, Being John Malkovich, and both and all three of those movies are all oh and and adaptation. So all four of those movies are very self-realizing, um, much like Birdman. Um, anyways, uh, we continue. Uh, it's it's actually pretty quick. Um, he's just working on this play that he. You know, uh, like Craig said, it has written, produced, and it's about this movie that it's, you know... It's it, about a book. It's, it's, it's about an a, adaptation of a book. Of a book. And he's... Is it a real book? Or is it, is it a book that's in the movie? So the book is called What Do We Talk About When We Talk About Love? Okay. And I'm not actually 100% sure if it is a real book, but I know that within the movie, they're saying that this is the move that this is the book that the movie is based on. Oh, okay. And then at the end of the movie, at the end of the credits, it says that the movie is also based off of this book. Oh, okay. And that's like the last line of the movie, I believe, or something. It's like one of the last things that uh, his character says, like in the movie, like before the finale, is like, "What do we talk about when we talk about love?" And that's part of his whole uh, speech in the play, is he has this monologue when he goes on about what do we talk about when we talk about love. Right, but uh, so. So he's working on this play. Um, it, the movie basically starts right before the first preview, which is like just a dress rehearsal where people are invited to watch, and there could be you know Hollywood elites or you know Broadway elites. Previews are basically soft openings for a show. It's, okay. Um, before it gets open for a wide audience or before it gets reviewed or anything, select people are allowed to buy tickets to basically attend dress rehearsals um, before the show goes up. Right, and, and so this movie is is vastly about those previews um, leading up until opening night and including opening night and then the aftermath of opening night. And then um, then the movie ends. And opening night is also when the play is going to be reviewed by a theater critic in The Times. Correct. Um, when we first start in, he's having trouble with the actor who will be replaced eventually by Ed Norton. He, he's not getting him what he needs. So he orchestrates an accident of having a light fall on this guy and take him out of commission. Does he orchestrate it, though? Yes, he does. He no, says but that he, does. he says he, that he does. He says that he does, but there's a lot of things in this movie that are questionable. Right, he's but not a reliable... He never... He's an unreliable man. So, all right, before we but, continue, this is another one of our movies, just like every <laughs> other movie that we're going to do. you got to watch the movie, because <laughs> they're not going to make any sense... But, Unless you do. Because, so from my understanding of it was because he at the beginning of the movie we start with him literally levitating in the middle of his dressing room. Right, right, right. Yeah. And throughout the movie there are these powers that are displayed and at every turn they make it seem like it was just a trick of the character's mind. Right. Like at every turn it's like, oh, like he pushes this like he He's throwing things around his dressing room with his mind. Right. And then Zach Galifianakis' character walks in, and he's actually picking things up and tossing them down. And then he, like, flies across the entire city, and then he gets to the theater, and he gets out, and, like, a, cab a cabbie 
chases them into the theater and says, that guy didn't pay me right. like my fare. And yeah. so this is going to come to one of my big questions about the movie later on, but uh, just for the sake of getting the synopsis out. So yeah, this is why going back to that moment where the <laughs> light falls on the actor's head right. and he says, I made that happen. Right. I don't know if he actually made that happen or right. if he just thinks that he yeah, made that but, happen because he's he thinks he has these powers, which at, we still at the end of the movie never really know right, yeah. quite and, if they're real or not. But, but for the sake of getting through the synopsis, um, they are able to bring in Ed Norton uh, to take over this role. Ed Norton is a huge asshole who starts automatically uh, messing with the play and messing with Michael Keaton and uh, just kind of pushing everyone around, pushing Michael Keaton's buttons. Um, this is all leading up to the opening night where uh, just before the opening night, Michael Keaton meets with the theater critic who's going to be reviewing the show, and she says that she's going to tear it apart, and that he is a superhero actor, has no place in the theater, and all these things. He goes through this kind of, we don't know if it's a mental break or what's happening, but he goes through this whole catharsis with um, the Birdman character who has been talking to him throughout the entire movie, like a voice in his head, and it starts physically manifesting itself. Um, and then eventually he has opening night and everything is going fantastic and he's really calm. Um, he ends up shooting his nose off during the show and then the play is reviewed as being amazing in this like huge breakthrough in the world of theater and everything. And at the end he flies away. Yeah, and I, I also feel like we're, we're missing some stuff here because uh, yeah, in the middle we're, there, we're he's, also, um, he's also taking care of his daughter who has just gotten out of rehab who's played by Emma Stone um, and she is throughout the movie essentially just wanting him to be a father and at every turn he's more centered on his own uh, ambition and what he's trying to do with this play than what she actually needs from him and Edward Norton kind of comes in and I wouldn't say fills the gap but I mean in one way he fills the gap but but, but Emma, Edward Norton and Emma Stone start having an affair yeah. in the middle of the movie. Like I said, fill in the gap. Right. Yes. Um, yeah, and so so this movie has a lot of like surrealism throughout. Um, as Craig said, that like there's a lot of scenes where where uh, Michael Keaton's character, uh, what's his name, Riggin? Riggin? Riggin. Riggin. Riggin is like, uh, you know, he's doing you know telekinesis and stuff you know where he's like throwing stuff around the room with his mind or he you know as simple as like spinning like a cigarette case on a desk or whatever but it's always when he's like by himself and so i'll get into my notes uh which i titled bird notes um i thought that was very clever um <laughs> and uh what i have to say here is that um i think his superpowers are expressions of what he imagines he is like a kid playing with his own imagination so like i think those are times where he is like really losing control of his life and so he is imagining the fact that he has superpowers and and um i think that really comes to head when like after he meets with the critic and she like destroys him which is like this perfect battle between like new york theater actors and then like hollywood you know LA Hollywood movie actors you know there's this like there's this underlying like battle between the two throughout the movie you know be it between like Edward Norton's character and Michael Keaton's character or just that confrontation between the the critic and Michael Keaton's character 
where she shreds him apart and then he goes out and like gets wasted and then like talks to like his inner self and then like flies around the city and you think he's gonna like jump off the a building at some point and um and then like this guy is like talking him down from that but then he just like turns and jumps off the building but he actually flies so you don't really know what's really happening or what's not um but personally i think those are just like him like really like you know just like working on himself you know because he just doesn't have any you know control in his life and so like that's when he like imagines that he has these like superpowers and he's greater than 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 what he is well my first time through this movie i had two possible interpretations of it when i was watching it i was saying this movie feels like a dream because so many things just flit from one to the other, and so much le is left so unconnected, uh, well, and it's oh, so I, strange, but there is an explanation for this, which I'm coming to in a minute. Okay, hang but on, then, before you continue, I just want to point out that like there is no cuts. That's in exactly this. what I was going to say. Yes. There are no cuts. There's no cuts. It's um, just one continuous That's done very shot. deliberately. Um, but my other potential read of it was, at the end was that he is a crazy person, and we're viewing this movie through the lens of his psychosis. And that's kind of why he has these powers, and why... Um, we're led to believe these powers, but there are no cuts. Um, the director wanted it to make, or wanted to make the movie look like one uninterrupted shot as much as possible. It was shot in sequence, even, uh, to uh, help establish that. Oh, wow. Yeah. But yeah, I always, I kind of thought that, at least with like the Birdman voice, it was literally just fame going to his head. It was, Literally, like, all of these years of having lived this life of notoriety and trying to regain that again through this play. Right. And the only connection he has with that level of fame was through being Birdman. And so that fame is, like, something that he's, like, trying to hold on to, even at the same time that he's trying to move past it. Mm -hmm. Because, like Sam, who is Emma Stone's character, in that confrontation that they have where... She's like, you ignore this entire world where you think you're the only person who's trying to be noticed. You think you're the only fucking person who is trying to do something with their life when there are millions of people on Twitter and millions of people on all of these, all of these media outlets and ways of like connecting with the world that you're completely ignoring. Mm. And he, the only thing that he knows is that old school style of being like the superhero and when he comes back and he's trying to do this and figure out a way to make it happen again he falls back to that same persona because that was the height of his life and the height of his fame and notoriety i i disagree i think i think um the birdman voices his anger as he says at the beginning that, that you're just my anger he's like no i'm not your anger i am you and because throughout the movie he's not he's never accepting that voice except for right after the confrontation with the critic. That's when he's like, he's really accepting the voice. Up until then, he's fighting that thing. Like he hides the picture and everything. And I, 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 think, I think Birdman and that voice and that persona is his anger and it's defined at the very end when he lets it go. Because he goes into the bathroom of his, of his hospital room and he takes off his, his bandages, right? And Birdman's sitting on the toilet and, and all Birdman says is goodbye, fuck you. And like not even loud it's like barely audible and then he turns and walks away right and then you don't hear the rest you don't hear birdman's voice ever again right and then and then you see michael keaton open the window and then fly away right i think i think that's him d 
denying his anger, shutting down his anger, and accepting the fact that he's actually happy. And, and, and in that, he's showing like this childlike image of himself where he has a superpower where he can fly around. And he's, I think, honestly, he's just like dicking off in his room or something like that. And that's why Emma Stone comes in and just smiles at him. Where he's like pretending well, to be, he's just being happy. But he was flying before well, no, though. That's the thing. No one sees that though. No but one sees that. She doesn't well, come in and smile. What you're arguing is no one sees it. Is with, with the argument they're saying that he's just dicking around in his room. Then that then at, your argument says that no one sees him flying at the end of the movie either. No, I don't think he's flying. She, but, I think it's like like what Colin is saying. I think it's through the eyes of his psychosis. So like he thinks he's flying, but my, the only problem with that is the last. The very last shot of the last scene of the movie, because Emma Stone doesn't come in and see him dicking around in his room. Emma Stone comes in and she's like, "Dad, Dad," and she starts to freak out because he's not in the room. Right. Then she goes to the window. She looks down as if she's convinced that he has jumped, and she, then she looks up. Right. And this huge smile comes across her face as if she's actually seeing him flying. But that's not her. That's him. The whole movie is through his eyes, <laughs> and so like, regardless of what she sees in the room, it's still through his vision. So he. He's imagining he's she's he's seeing her see him fly around. Well, I mean, I could see that because honestly, in this movie, there are so many other like so much more interesting stories that I feel that are happening in the background, like with oh, uh, yeah. Laura being pregnant and uh, with uh, Mike and Leslie. Is, is that Naomi Watts? Yes. Yeah. yeah. With Mike and Leslie's Shh. relationship. Like, all of those things are so much more important than this guy who's just being a really shitty father right. and just well, wants this play to be successful. Like, all of those stories are more, are, are more for me, more interesting for me. And at the same time, we never get those. We only get those as those very minimal, how they affect Regan, essentially, is how they come into play in the movie because it is, like you're saying, very much from his point of view. Right. So I don't necessarily agree with the with the interpretation that Emma Watson is, or Emma Stone is being seen through his eyes at the end, but I can see where that would come from just because of how this movie is is become so far. But there's never really any moment where you're directly where there's that much of a disconnect between Riggins' perspective in the movie and what's happening with other characters, which is why I don't necessarily agree that Emma Stone is literally his vision of Emma Stone at the end of the movie. I think it could be read either way, but um, the other thing, I, I, it's not necessarily just about him wanting this play to be successful or about the play, it's about him seeking love. Right. The, the, the title card at the beginning of the movie says, and did you get what you wanted from this life even so? I did, and what did you want to call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth? But and there's a lot that of things. At every turn, though, the, the whole play is about people trying to define love, people trying to understand the nature of love, if they're loved. His character at the end of the play kills himself because he's not loved by the woman he was married to for all these years. There's even a scene with um, his ex-wife, who's played by Amy Ryan, who most of you will recognize from The Wire and uh, The Office. Um, but she has a line where she says, you confuse love for admiration. Right. And there's the scene with Emma Stone where she's talking about, like, you aren't, you're trying to be loved and all these things. So the movie is all about him trying to be loved or trying to define the way that people love him. See, that's the thing. is like, I, I think that he is, he thinks that he's trying to be loved, but 
like his ex-wife says, he's very confused about what that is. Because his ex-wife, like, is still very much in love with him. Very much, like, oh, yeah. caring for him. Oh, yeah. oh, totally. Very much, like, I completely understand where you're coming from. I just could not do this anymore. Like, she's like, I love you so much. I just could not, like, you literally, like, tried to stab me and then said that you loved me a second later. <laughs> and I couldn't deal with it anymore. And his daughter is just, like, Kim, she's working for him. She is, you know, she's angsty and, you know, emotional and all of those things as far as, you know, the typical kind of... <coughs> shit show of a daughter right, like, well, in this story but at the same time she's still at every turn supporting him like, yeah. even if she's griping about it the entire time she's still going and you know getting the flowers even if she gets roses and he says he doesn't like roses like she's right. still like out there like doing this for him and you know as far as we can tell you know like just trying to be supported by him and at every turn he's just kind of ignoring her to focus on this play that he thinks is going is gonna to bring him this love or this admiration when he's got these two people who have been trying to like do it the whole time. Right, and and and, and I think you know uh, Sam is is the is reality. She she represents reality in Did, this like crazy fuck of a movie. I is, mean, is she reality or is Zach Galifianakis reality? No, Zach Galifianakis is is the. He is the Hollywood version of the critic, in my opinion. Because when he says, when Galifianakis, at the very end, when he's, when, uh, he's in the, um, in the, words, I keep on wanting to call the hospital a hotel. So when he's in the hospital at the end, um, he, uh, the media busts in, right? And then he turns around and, like, lashes at the media after, like, right after, okay, so, sorry. He's, he's in the hotel room. He's in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> he's in the hospital with Michael Keaton, who just shot his nose off at the end of the play. And he's talking about how great this is, because the critic just gave a really good review of the play. And he's saying that they can spin this around and it's going to be great. And it's going to be the best thing that's ever happened to, like, both their lives. And so right when he's saying all that and basically just like capitalizing on like a on Michael Keaton like attempting to commit suicide and on a stage, um, did he though? Yeah, I think he no, missed. no, he didn't. They intentionally show the clip uh, that he loads into the gun that they're blanks. Oh, really? Yeah, they they show that they are like shell casings, but there's no bullet in there, so they show that they are blanks. So, I mean, you probably could still kill yourself holding well, a yeah. gun loaded with blanks to your head and shooting it, but they do show that they're not actually bullets. Oh. See, I thought that's where why he got the zen from the last report from, you know, opening night, was that he was planning on killing himself at the end of the play. No, see, I, I was wondering that too, but then at the same time, I'm like, how do you try and kill yourself and then shoot your nose? Like... Right, like your nose about like it, you literally have like have to be like out here to shoot. Well, I thought that was just a play on like the fact that he's Birdman, you know, and that like he missed his head and like shot his nose off, you know, and so then he gets a new nose that's like more like, you know, which like couples with the fact that like he's finally happy at the end, as far as my interpretation of the whole movie. But but 
back to what I was saying with Galifianakis, when he turns around and he and the media breaks in and they're all like trying to you know take a picture of Michael Keaton you know in the hospital bed, he calls them all a fucking parasite, and. That's just icing to me because he's also a parasite. He's also being parasitic to this oh, whole situation. You know, I, I, he might be kind of a parasite, but it's also a bit of a symbiotic relationship because without Zach Galifianakis, like handling things on the business end, Michael Keaton would have tanked this whole thing Guaranteed. three times throughout I, I, the movie. I totally agree with that, but like, but what I'm saying is that in that moment when Galifianakis is just done talking about how we can capitalize on this obvious tragedy and make it a really positive thing, and like what Keaton's ex-wife is in the yeah, hospital room and be like, "Are you fucking insane?" Yeah, even yeah. she even hits him, you know. And then he turns around and calls the media a fucking parasite. I was like, "Oh my god, that's that's amazing." And then and and oh my god, I just... well, I feel like this, this movie <laughs> in and of itself is very much intentionally contradictory, like in the sense of. Like, this movie very much says, while at the same time, like, admires, like, or, like, pro, like poses Riggin as the protagonist for trying to make this play successful, also says that him trying to make this play successful is what makes him a shitty person. Right. And throughout the movie, there are things like when he's talking with Ed, Edward Norton's character at the bar, and he's like, I got this autograph from my hero right. and he was like it's on a cocktail napkin he was drunk right. and it's like he has this he's been carrying around this token forever right. from this person and it's like from a drunken hero and he and that is one of those things like that and when Edward Norton also goes to the uh, critic and says essentially those who can't act or like can't do this job are the critics Right. Things like that where those are things that this movie itself is is banking on. You know, this movie like banks on, you know, like right. getting good Well that's the meta subject, I yeah, think. Like I think I think like the movie is, you know, like as Colin has said and open my ass too, is that it, it's about, you know, defining love and figuring out what love is in life. But I think the meta story of this movie is theater versus movie and 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 that constant war you know that's going on where it's where you know stage actors hate hate hollywood you know they think that that's just a huge waste of time and and in this movie they both opinions are expressed very well through the critic edward norton and the whole freaking movie you know it's it's expressing all of these problems with hollywood i mean the fact that he's constantly critiquing how they're just cranking out these superhero movies and there's no art anymore and so that's why he's in New York you know putting out this play something that's meaningful you know to escape that you know but he is that he is Hollywood he's he's the pinnacle of it and 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 it's amazing that this movie won best picture in 2014 because this is the very problem with what is going on with the movies that we're watching right now you know we have blockbusters called that make billions of dollars called fast and furious 7 and jurassic world whereas like you know really good art pieces like this one you know they fall by the wayside you know and and people don't really recognize them i, I was blown away to find out that this won best picture i was really blown away uh, well, I mean, it was a pretty successful movie. Yeah, it did very well, yeah. and I still love Fast and Furious movies. Oh, <laughs> don't get me wrong. They're, they're 
terrible, but they're fun girls. Don't get you me know. wrong, but you have to admit that, like, there's isn't there a little bit of a fear that that's kind of taking oh, over yeah, Hollywood? Oh, yeah, it's going to, oh, like, yeah. that our culture is kind of diminishing. Right. Like, you're, like don't get me wrong, still those are getting very some entertaining really movies, great, but... really artful movies being made. Um, but, but, yeah, I think the movie is kind of cr- criticizing that or making a point about that. The, the other thing that kind of touches on that or touches on um, the being loved versus art thing is Ed Norton's character. Because Ed Norton in this movie is a straight-up asshole. Oh, he's the worst. Like, he's a really terrible dude. Um, but he's also, like, the most artistic one. He's the guy who's, like, the real, like, I need everything to be real and raw and all this stuff. He's the, like, really admired stage actor. Um, and as much as Michael Keaton is, is seeking love and caring about love, Ed Norton doesn't give a shit what people think about him or if anyone loves him. Right. Hey, I mean, he's concerned about getting it up, but that's, like, it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as far as, like, you know, outside of being on stage. Can I just say, I thought it was extremely creepy, his line to Sam, where he they're on the roof, and he says he wants to pull out her eyes so he could see the street like she does, like he, like... Like he, no, no, that he could see the world or he could see the city the way she saw, or he saw it at her age. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. that's just really it, it just oh, feeds into his weird, pompous, like, yeah. look on life. I, 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 I found Edward Norton's character to be, like, the, the epitome of stage theater actor douchebag. You know, like, he was like a, he was like a cartoon character of that, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I, I he, blown away by his performance. Naomi Watts slays her performance in this movie. Michael Keaton kills it in this movie. He absolutely crushes it. Is what I wrote. Um, I think Emma Stone is really good in it too. Uh, I, I mean, messed up Gwen Stacy. <laughs> I was like, oh, Gwen Stacy fell a long way. <laughs> no, I, th- I thought she did a very good job as well. I thought everyone in this movie actually did a very good job. I was just blown away by Michael Keaton. Like, well, yeah, Michael Keaton, I think, really shines through this movie. Um, well, obviously, because he has the most to do in this movie. Right. He gives a really great performance. Crazy close-ups. I really love the cinematography and how it was shot. Um, it, since it's so much about personality and and acting and you know all like the meta story as well as like love and everything there's these shots are like right in people's face like well, well there's right in their face there's lots of great close-ups and there's lots of great tracking shots too which is really impressive considering that it's all ostensibly one take right that just setting up those tracking shots and getting them done so well must have is just a real feat of directing and I don't know. I was honestly, I didn't know how to take the ending. I had mixed feelings, pretty much from like the scene where he's like running around in his underwear through the city, like on. As far as how throughout the movie, there's kind of this separation between creating something for artistic merit and creating something for people just to see it, just to have a lot of people see it. And uh, I think Edward Norton has a line where he says, popularity is just like the slutty version of prestige. Mm. And, but at the end though, like it's still like, Emma Stone's like, we have 80,000 Twitter followers in one day after you shot your face off. And that's like a point of pride. And I, I don't know, I felt like it took away a little bit from what the movie was trying to say up until that point about 
about just doing things for the sake of going viral. Because it's not why he did it. I understand that, but at the same time, it's still like why even like bring that part into it at the end? Like why even? Because that's who he is at the core. That's the Hollywood half, you know. That's like as much as he hates it, you know, as much as he wants to be uh, Edward Norton, you know, as much as he wants to be like this artsy, you know, true actor, you know, that that earns that review from the critic, you know. He is still Birdman. See, you know? and that's why I was saying the voice is his past fame. Ah, it's that's, anger. You're going, you're just bent right into my No, 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 wait. No, no. <laughs> they can live together. Our, both of our opinions can live together. We can just say that the voice is his inner monologue, be it driven from his anger, being it driven from the memories of his fame or whatever. But, well, I can, I say I can, it can be both because I think that it is his fame but he doesn't want to have that like he he's trying to move past that and so he is angry at himself for still wanting to relive those that victory for still wanting to relive in that celebrity status so i i we can have it both ways yes he can be angry at his voice that is also the reminiscence of his fame right i think it's his anger i think i think the reminiscence of his fame and is yeah I don't know, man. It's see, the, the that's the difficulty of this movie is that like I have rarely seen a movie where it's really up to the definition of the viewer. It's 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 awesome how they set it up. My 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 definition of the of the meaning of the movie uh, can totally coincide with yours and Collins because it's such a I feel it's it was such a personal affair. You know, it was the whole movie. Is is the insight of this of of a of a man's mind, you know, and and I think we can all relate to that. I think um, there, it's open to a lot of interpretation, and that's what makes it a really impressive movie. Right, exactly, uh, and and that that that's why the the ending is is as ambiguous as it is, you know. Um, well, they definitely do a very good job of showing, not telling, of just having a character living in this world without having the standard uh, you know, third-party exposition dump or without having the character constantly saying exactly how they're feeling. Um, because as much as he does say that in the context of the play in terms of, you know, why do I always have to beg people to love me? Or, you know, like, I'm invisible. Like, where those things are, are Michael Keaton's character, but are also Riggin Thompson's character. Right. So it's really cool how they do that, how they can have a character say something that the uh, the character within the character of the movie saying something that is actually what the character is feeling. Right. It's just, yeah. It's, it's, it really is, <laughs> like, I wish I saw it again because, fuck. Like, so, it is much better the second time through. Um, I The second time through, I would had a different read of it and I still am not entirely convinced that the movie isn't a, a dream uh, and I'll, I'll kind of go over sort of the, the last of my notes that um, make me feel that the biggest one is just the the no cuts thing uh, the way that the we'll be following one scene and the camera will pan up and just within that camera pan we have a cut in time right and so it, it's the way that that happens in dreams where things just flit from oh, one yeah, yeah. to the yeah. next to oh, the yeah. next and it's all completely fluid but somehow it still makes sense to us. Well, like, like a perfect example is when um, uh, 
he sabotages the other lead in the play, and then they're they're talking. Uh, he's talking with Galifianakis at their at his uh, um, his dressing room door and is like what someone's not gonna just knock on the door and give us the perfect actor and, and then Naomi Watts knocks on the door, on the door and says and Edward like, Norton's like, yeah Edward yeah, Norton can work this so, and then there's and then it doesn't even cut it like it just goes straight from like great well like you should tell him to show tell up him to show up and, and then, then the it just goes just right over hands to into it and Edward Norton is there there yeah um, so there, that's one thing there's or the, even the scene where he does get out of the taxi or flies into the theater right, right. Yeah, yeah. and then it just shows the front of the theater yeah. for a shot and then it's like nighttime and everyone's coming out of the theater yeah uh, intermission. There's that. There's the thing with the toilet paper roll, which they do explain later on in the movie. But in the beginning of it, it's just one of those things that like happens in a dream. That for some reason, this person is sitting there with a the toilet paper roll, just making marks on all the squares of the toilet paper. Uh, they do explain that it's a really cool thing uh, about like they, she did this in rehab that they make dashes on the toilet paper, and each dash is a thousand years. And humans have only existed on the last square of the toilet paper, so that's only 150,000 years. So it just gives you perspective. Well, so into that as well, because she says that the one square shows like what all of our ego and self-worth yes, is. Yes, all our ego and self-worth is And worth. I just felt like in that moment, I really, really disliked Michael Keaton's character for blow, for like wiping oh, his yeah. mouth oh, with yeah. that. Because it was literally... Her saying, but she, that's all our ego is worth, and then him completely ignoring that message but through then his she, own ego. She completely makes a joke out of it by saying, well, there you go, you just destroyed the entire human race. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and that again just goes towards the whole critique of his quest for love and how what is the purpose of his quest for love. It's kind of meaningless because humans are only the last 150,000 years. They're the last square. Um, the other thing I had written down that just is, that makes it feel like a dream is like, what is up with the, the kiss between the two ladies, between Naomi Watts and, uh, yeah, the another interesting like, story. That it, just... That just, well, it had nothing to do with anything else in the movie. Right. It, it was just this sort of, but it also seems like something that might be in Riggins' dream. Right. It, it could totally be a thing that would happen in Riggins' dream. Uh, also the drums just the fact that the drums are following him throughout the whole movie is another thing that you would see in a dream yeah, yeah. Oh, and at points how he you know essentially controls the soundtrack of the movie but yeah, like, he, like, he can say, say start the music start the music and like so that could be his superpowers or again it could be that the, the things a dream uh, there's the homeless man who is shouting Macbeth when he's walking out of the liquor store there's a homeless man who's doing this monologue for Macbeth and then as he walks by, the guy gives him basically the same line that the other actor gave the him in the beginning. He's like, oh, was that too much? I can tell from, from your look that it was too much. I'm just trying to give you a range, man. Right. Like, it's a callback to that. Was so, it the same actor? I no, it wasn't. It was not the same actor. Uh, I thought it was the same actor. Um, Honestly, I, I have to say, I first time I watched this movie, I just really could not figure out why I didn't like it. <laughs> And I realized it the second time through because I realized that I kept trying to like Riggin, Michael mm. Keaton's character. I mm. kept trying to find some redeemable like aspect of him throughout the movie. Right. And like nothing even close to that happens until like the end of the movie. Mm. And so like the whole time I was just like, Why do I care about this character in this stupid fucking play? <laughs> and then the second time I watched it, I was like God damn it! This is all of us. Like we're all right. like pieces of shit. Oh yeah, like, we're yeah. all like yeah. are all ca caught up in our own selfish yeah. things. No, I, I, and I, I, at the end of the day, we all have 
like things that we ignore, people that we ignore, mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in service of finding what we think we should be doing with our lives or finding our singular passion. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in a sense, you kind of have to do that a little bit. You have to do what is best for you to some certain extent, which I don't know. I just don't know. I couldn't figure out why I was supposed to like him. And then I realized that you weren't supposed to like him as much as just relate to him. Right, because it's like the most... That's that's why I I mean it feels like such a Charlie Kaufman movie. It's it it was like it reminded me of um, uh, adaptation in you know um, uh, Charlie uh, sorry Nick Cage Nicholas Cage God dang what's wrong with me Nicholas Cage's character in that movie is the same thing you know he's not likable you know but he's not hateable either he's, he's just he's just a human being, you know, just like the rest of us, you know, and, and Keaton's character in this, and I'd like to go back to the scene with the uh, roll of toilet paper with the ticks and that he blows his nose on it. Like, how many times have, has this happened to you where you're saying something really poignant to your friend or your or your family member or whatever, and you think it's really important and you really wish that they listened to you, but then they, you could just tell that they're not at all. Like, that's happened to me a lot. I yeah. know it has. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> that's, that's certainly a thing that's happened to everyone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, everyone has experienced it, and and I I think that was just a very real moment because it's like yeah, you hate him for doing that, but at the same time it's like I've both done that and I've also been on the receiving end of that, you know. And, and but he also does realize immediately like oh shit, I'm sorry. Right. Like, I, like that was a really shitty thing to do. Yeah, yeah. I was just caught up in in my own shit for the moment. But yeah, it's right. And th th that's just one example. Um, unfortunately, I gotta kind of. Not really end it, but we got to start wrapping it up. Um, I guess we should just go over what this movie, like, last feelings, I guess, or first impressions is what we were doing, or? We've been doing, yeah, kind of any combination of those things. Yeah. So, Colin, um, everlasting feelings and first impressions from you. Uh, I still um, think that this movie is either a dream or it is just a, a movie that is told through the lens of his own psychosis. I think it can be read either way, but I'm sure that there's a bunch of other perfectly valid interpretations, and I think that that's why this movie is so interesting, is that it's very ambiguous and there's a lot of ways you can look at it. Do you like it? I do like it. Um, I liked it a lot more the second time through, but yeah, that's about where I'm at with it. All right, Mr. Hale. I'd say this movie provides a formula for success. So you start a play, shoot yourself in the face, <laughs> start a Twitter, and then you make money. <laughs> So that's the moral I got from this <laughs> Very, very dry, very, very business. <laughs> um, no, but as far as the movie goes, I did enjoy it. I still have mixed feelings about the ending, and only because I, I just wonder like, why go through the effort to make it look like the powers were fake in the first place, uh, when just him being alone, when the powers happen is enough to instill that doubt in the mm -hmm. movie. So that was one thing where at the end of it and it was, you know, proposed that this could be a very real thing. But throughout the movie at every turn they make the double effort to disprove that these powers are real. So I I kind of wanted a little bit more ambiguity when it came to the powers instead of kind of this sure shot thing and then a complete reversal at the end mm. yeah but overall i liked it it was just that one thing that bothered me the most when it came to the ending of the movie that i still was just thinking about yeah, Can you view it as I, an inconsistency I, yeah. i'd agree with that 
Okay. Um, I, I'd like to say um, I, I initially uh, thought that this was, like, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, this is an awesome, like, uh, view into the madness of theater play and, and working on a, on a big theater production, you know, because it's one continuous shot, you know, and, and, and all that. But by the end of it, I realized it's so much more, and what has is, what is stuck with me uh, for this movie is that I, I, I feel like overall it's a very amazing, I mean, it's like I said at the beginning, I think this is a Hollywood masturbation piece. I think this is uh, not as, not anywhere near as dumb, but in the same vein as like Ocean's Eleven and Ocean's Twelve, where they're like, it's, it's for, it's made in Hollywood, not necessarily for Hollywood, but it's, it's a, it's a self-reflection and it's an amazing self-reflection on, on the industry and particularly in acting in general. Um, so it's a really good masturbation session. Right. It's yeah, still yeah. a masturbation oh, session. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because <laughs> I, I don't think this was for, I don't think this was for the audience. I think this was for actors. I think this was for, for people that are in, in theater and in plays and stuff. Um, I really loved this movie. Um, I think every once in a while it's good to have movies like this. Um, and yeah, I'd, I'd like to see it again. I, like I said, I, I've never seen such a multi-layered movie that allows for so many varied interpretations. And I'd like to see more of that. Um, anything else? Anything else you guys like to say about this before? <laughs> Alright, um, well, um, then we will wrap this up like we have been and talk about what we're interested in. Um, we really need names for segments here. <laughs> uh, which well, we call I, I don't see what's wrong with plugs, just because, I mean, that's generally... Well, like plugs that. are generally, like, things that, that you're, you're doing. You're doing yeah, we can, we can plug this podcast. I want to plug, uh, uh, I want you to watch this. Uh, you are listening to it right okay, now. I'm just call it uh, Recommendations. Yeah. Um, recommendations. Recommendations. I'm for uh, all right, kick us off, Colin Munch. Uh, I am going to recommend uh, Carrie Fisher's one-woman show called Wishful Drinking. It is available on HBO. It is a wonderful, wonderful piece about uh, growing up the daughter of Hollywood royalty and celebrity and dealing with her addictions and uh, her ultimate redemption. And in the wake of Carrie Fisher's untimely death, it is a great thing to watch. Craig Hale? I will recommend... Insecure. It's been out for a little while now. Uh, Issa Rae is the creator, writer, stars in the show. Uh, it's very much a show about being insecure and also a lot to do with um, general anxiety, but also anxiety surrounding you know living as a black person in America, uh, anxiety as living as a woman in America, anxiety as the cross-sections of all of those things. Mm. Uh, so I would highly recommend that and watch it. <laughs> um, my recommendation is the podcast The Canon, um, which is, I would be um, ignorant to say that it was not a influence to this podcast. It's definitely was a huge influence to this podcast. Yeah, we, we've been referencing it without really right. giving att attribution to the hosts of it. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you it's, okay. it's a very, yeah. very good podcast uh, featuring, uh, it's Amy Nicholson and Devin, Devin Faraci. Devin Faraci, and they're two um, movie critics, and they uh, have pretty contentious viewpoints on a lot of movies. They also agree on a lot of movies, but regardless... 
it is a really fun podcast to listen to if you're a movie fan because they take apart movies in a really cool way and uh, I've rewatched many of my favorite movies uh, and, and some movies that I hated before um, because of, of their reviews and just their insight so that would be my recommendation other than that the next movie suggestion for I want you to watch this is going to be coming from Colin Munch. So uh, next week we're going to lighten things up a little bit. We're going to be watching a parody of romantic comedies done by David Wayne and Michael Showalter, the people who brought us Wet Hot American Summer. So we'll be watching They Came Together, starring Amy Poehler and Paul Rudd. All right. Um, so They Came Together next week. Uh, that will wrap up episode three of I Want You to Watch This. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.